This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week Live from the nation's capital. I'm Jason Kelly, alongside David Rubenstein, co-founder, co-chairman of the Carlyle Group. So, David, catching our breath here a little bit, another record day on Wall Street. It's hard to believe it can keep going on. I've been amazed, and I think most people would not have predicted this one or two months ago. I think one or two months ago, people thought the steam was coming out, and now the steam is kind of heating up. So I wish I could explain it, but I really cannot. Absolutely. Well, if you can't explain it, I'm not sure who can. But we will turn to set the Business Week agenda with a guy who watches the markets every day, Dave Wilson, stocks editor, author of the chart and stock of the day. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Dave, come on in here. What are you seeing underneath this trade? You've got all 11 of the main industry groups in the S&P 500 higher, which really kind of jumps out. I mean, some of the more defensive areas of the market leading the way, you know, consumer staples, food, beverage, tobacco, healthcare, utilities. But on the other side of the coin, you look at what's going on with the cruise line owners, and they're really leading the way here, especially Carnival, up more than 7%, biggest gain in the S&P 500. Uh, their fiscal fourth quarter earnings beat analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey by the most in two years. Revenue came out ahead. Their outlook for the current fiscal year, also positive. You put it all together, you've got uh, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Line up by about 3.5%, also lifting the S&P 500. And you want to talk about an economically sensitive kind of area? Certainly you would think you know, cruise line travel fits that bill. So you've kind of got it from both directions in today's trading. You know, it's interesting uh, with the impeachment crisis going on or impeachment uh, process going on, uh, one might think if you were an outsider that there'd be uncertainty in the markets. People are not sure what's going on. What I think is really going on is the China deal is essentially done. The Mexican deal, Canadian-Mexican deal, is essentially done. Interest rates are staying low. Unemployment is very low. And I think uh, many people feel that the impeachment process, however it unfolds, is not likely to lead to the president leaving office anytime soon. So people who are looking for certainty in the market see that there's pretty going to pretty – um, a fair amount of certainty going forward. We know what the interest rates are likely to be. We know what the trade situation is likely to be in the near term. Uh, we know what the unemployment situation is likely to be. And we don't see any real change in the presidential situation. And are you surprised, Dave Wilson, at how little politics either has not played in or has been baked in, to David's point? Well, it really goes to show you that you know, investors are focusing on things like the economy and earnings. You know, here we are, you know, 10 years plus into an economic expansion. And though certainly you go back to, say, August and there was concern that uh, we, we'd finally start to see a contraction, it hasn't materialized. And, you know, you look out to next year and, and a whole lot of people are anticipating that the growth will last And then as far as earnings go, you look at the numbers we've compiled on S&P 500 companies from individual companies, and you see analysts anticipating that, yeah, we may be down this quarter, uh, but you look at the first, second, third, and fourth quarters of next year, you're seeing what you would call sequential improvement. 
quarter to quarter. By the time you get to the fourth quarter, 13% plus earnings growth. Now, that's the view. Whether it plays out or not right. remains to be seen. Nonetheless, you can understand where the optimism on stocks comes from, given the sustainability of the economic expansion and the prospects for earnings as are reflected in analyst estimates. Absolutely. And I think that the markets generally like to figure out what is going to happen the next couple of months or six months or so, and they like predictability. And right now, over the next six months, they don't see a change in interest rates going up. They think President Trump will be in office for certain. They think there's not going to be trade wars of any consequence. So I think investors are pretty good. Yeah. Now, there no doubt are some economists somewhere who are saying it's going to lead to a, at some point, we're going to have a slowdown, and those memos will be pulled out of the file when we actually have a slowdown. But right now, people are not actually surfacing those memos. Yeah, absolutely. It does not seem to, to be the case at all. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. You'll be back with me later on with your chart and stock of the day. David Rubenstein going to be with me here for a couple hours. And David, I have to ask you, you know, over at Carlisle, a huge portfolio of companies, you talk to CEOs all the time, you interview them, uh, many of them on your show, uh, peer-to-peer conversations here on Bloomberg TV. How do they feel? I mean, because we have sent some caution from CEOs over the back half of this year. Well, CEOs don't want to look like they're too um, ebullient, and they don't always want to be prepared for a downturn. But right now, they have a fair amount of cash. Their stock prices are high. Um, they're feeling pretty good about things. They don't want to go out in the public and say, look how great things are and things right. can't go wrong. But they're feeling privately pretty good about things. There's always a cautionary word here or there. But generally, they're feeling pretty good. And are they doing deals? I mean, that's always one of the questions around you know where we are in the cycle in terms of do they feel comfortable doing a big acquisition or, or sort of spending some of that money? I think the M&A market is okay. But the, the slowdown there, to the extent there is a slowdown, is simply that prices are very high. So there are no very there are very few bargains out there. And you don't see any value investors really saying there's a great uh, cheap thing to buy. So prices are high and you have to swallow the idea that you're going to be paying uh, for good companies a much higher multiple than you normally would pay. And I know we're going to talk about private equity throughout the show, but does that make private equity deal making that much harder, those valuations? Private equity deal making is uh, doing okay this year. I would say it's about what it was last year. The principal issue is that you have to get comfortable with paying 13, 14 times cash flow or EBITDA multiples. And the way you can get comfortable with it is really that investors are willing to accept somewhat lower rates of return than they were five or 10 years ago. Today, in the low interest rate environment, if you can get an investor 13, 14, 15% net internal rate of return over five years, they're happy with that. In the old days, you might have wanted 20%. Right. So investors are willing to take lower rates of return. You can still do these deals, but they're no doubt more expensive. Well, 13 to 15% feels amazing in a world of negative interest rates and where you're just not seeing the sorts of yields that uh, you might be used to. Well, that's true, because those deals take three or four years to pull off, sure. and there's some illiquidity for the uh, in the markets when you when you do those deals. But generally, people are pretty uh, feeling they can get those kind of returns, and we have been able to do that. And a lot of enthusiasm still for alternatives, it feels like, among institutional investors. There's more enthusiasm than in the 30 years I've seen uh, this market. And I think the reason is that people think there will be a turndown at some point. And what we learned in the last turndown, the Great Recession, is that private equity and alternatives tended to be a pretty good hedge. Uh, not not so much hedge funds, but uh, uh, private equity firms did pretty well through the Great Recession because they fixed their companies, they, they put in more equity if necessary, or they they bought some debt back at a discount. And people think if there's a downturn again, these same managers will figure out how right. to get through it. 
All right. Much, much more to come with David Rubenstein here on a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk a little bit about this split screen week that we had in politics, talk a little bit about trade and much more coming up. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Jason Kelly and David Rubenstein here in our 99.1 studio and just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. President Trump accepting the February 4th State of the Union invitation from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And who better to break down politics? We go straight to the boss when we come here to Washington. Craig Gordon, executive editor and Washington bureau chief, joining David and myself in our 99.1 studio. So we're going to hear from the president on February 4th. Yeah, I mean, you, you, the, the the sort of the historical moments keep piling up here. Uh, I mean, if we understand the schedule for the impeachment uh, trial in the Senate, which we don't really have yet, but the sort of the rough guessing is it maybe starts around the second week in January, takes only a couple of weeks. I mean, you could literally have the president having been acquitted of impeachment, the two impeachment uh, charges you know, days before he steps into the well of the House to, to give his uh, address on the State of the Union. The person who brought those impeachment articles, of course, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi staring right or sitting right behind him, actually. And I mean, it's just I feel like every day we come to work here, there's just another thing that's going to end up in the history books. And this uh, that Friday, uh, that uh, Tuesday, February 4th will be another one of them. It will be surreal. Uh, generally, you don't have uh, an impeachment just having been completed and somebody giving their State of the Union right afterwards. So uh, I'm sure it'll be an interesting address, and I suspect it'll have record uh, ratings. And so, Craig, tell us about this week. I mean, because I feel like all of us around this table, if you had told us a year ago, certainly five years ago, the level to which people were meh about the idea of a president being impeached, we would have told ourselves we were insane. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And, and it's it's interesting because as the Washington Bureau Chief, I run a bureau. I have 75 people that report to me. We cover this news every day. And I did feel myself having to give a couple of Newt Rockne-style speeches like, hey, folks, this is a big moment. Let's not lose sight of that. It's just we, we're on like big moment overload. You know, every day, almost literally every day since Donald Trump has been the president, something unbelievable has happened. He fires James Comey. He, you know, the Mueller report, the Mueller testimony, he go right down all the list, all the, all the moments we remember. And so when it finally comes to, again, the ultimate sanction of the United States Congress against the president impeachment, it was a little bit hard sometimes to muster the energy. Now, part of that was just like, we all knew that it was a foregone conclusion and, uh, you know, they were going to get the majority in the house. There was never any drama or question about that. You know, it was hard to get excited about, will any Democrats defect? I guess two or three ended up defecting that we kind of even knew who those people were going to be. So there was some of the drama was just wrung out of it by the by the sheer inevitability of it. Um, But what did add certainly a little bit of spice to the day was, you know, uh, this split screen moment where you have the president of the United States at a rally in Battle Creek, Michigan, literally as the gavel is falling on his impeachment for several minutes not knowing that. And, you know, so he's sort of giving a lot of his standard lines. It's a witch hunt. It's unfair. And no president should have to go through this. And we all know something that the president of the United States doesn't know that it's, he's already actually just been impeached. Right. And there was actually quite a moment where uh, uh, one of his staffers, I believe it was one of his staff stenographers, literally held up a giant white, you know, sort of piece of poster board that had the vote on it that uh, and then he could read it and we could watch him reading it. And we saw him reading it and then he read it and he said, oh, no, Republicans right. broke. So, you know, whatever. So, you know, the, the just again, you, you almost words almost fail you as you try to capture the history of it. And yet that day there was a certain amount of uh, a quality of watching paint dry. 
What's hard to believe, really, is that for two years, Bob Mueller did an investigation. Most people thought something would come from that that would be perhaps not favorable to the president, but nothing really came out of that. Then a whistleblower sent in an anonymous letter three months ago, and in three months, you're at this stage. Who would have predicted that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think the one place where Trump, you know, there's a, he has a little bit of, of, of a little ground to stand on is like, folks, you spent two years, you hired Robert Mueller. Everybody told me he was the prosecutor's prosecutor, the you know, the most honest man on earth and whatever. And he put out his report. He, We all know he didn't exonerate the president entirely on the obstruction of justice part. He sort of did on the collusion part. And the Democrats really did kind of have to just sweep all that aside until this new thing came along from the whistleblower. And it's not my job to decide, you know, whether that's impeachable or not. But it, it is sort of remarkable. And this is the one thing that I do think Trump can can make some hay on in the campaign trail, that the, the investigation that was supposed to bring me down, bring me didn't bring me down, so they had to come up with something else. Right now, look what the whistleblower says pretty dramatic. We all know the facts of the case. He called the guy in Ukraine and said, "Should investigate Joe Biden." And the guy said, oh, "Let me get back to you on that." And you know, whatnot. But it, you know, again, over three and a half years of Donald Trump's presidency, essentially, it was really just the thing that happened in the last two months that led to his impeachment, and that alone, I think, will give him something to whip up his crowds with, which he's quite good at doing. Without addressing the merits of the impeachment the effort and so forth. I do wonder if the approach that had been used by Ronald Reagan when he dealt with Iran-Contra had been used here, whether this would have faded away. In other words, a speech, a speech by the president saying, I didn't quite understand the implications of what I was saying. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Whether that contrition might have uh, kept this from going forward. And obviously worked with Ronald Reagan because many people at the time were thinking he should have been impeached mm. for the Iran-Contra thing. And then he made a speech that kind of diffused all of that. Obviously, the president didn't choose to do that, but I think historians will always debate whether something like that might have made a difference. Yeah, I mean, we have been struck many times that there are two words that do not seem to exist in Donald Trump's vocabulary, and they are, I'm sorry. Yeah. So you're right. In that case where Reagan, at that point, somewhat somewhat of a lion in winter, somewhat of a fading figure, still had enough of a reservoir of goodwill to tap into to say, hey, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, or I'm sorry. I'm just not sure Trump, th his reservoir is empty. There was no, I, not much to begin with, so that would have been a harder trick for him to pull off. I recognize it was probably unlikely he would do that. I just wondered if somebody other than Trump had had this yeah. same situation and you said, I'm sorry, because generally in, in society, people get away with a lot when you say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake and people are willing to forgive people. But yeah. uh, obviously not this situation. Well, the story goes on. We know that after the first of the year, at some point, uh, maybe before the articles will be sent to the Senate and the story goes on. We will count on Craig Gordon and his team here in Washington to bring it to us. Craig Gordon, executive editor, Washington Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, joining David Rubenstein and myself here in our 99.1 studio. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about trade. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly in the 99.1 studio in D.C. alongside David Rubenstein, co-founder of Carlisle Group. And with us now, Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, one of the busiest guys across the empire. Sean, great to be with you in your town. Thanks to having me. All right. So a big week, to say the least, on a couple fronts as it relates to trade. Let's talk about China first. What happens next? We're going to actually get something signed. 
Yeah, well, you heard Wilbur Ross there. Uh, it looks like they're in the final stages of getting something translated. was talking to someone close to the process yesterday who said they're basically trading drafts in Chinese right now that are going back and forth across the Pacific. Uh, uh, I guess you go with email on that one. Right. Uh, they're uh, talking by um, the phone as well throughout, uh, still working out the details of a signing. But the plan at this point is for Lu He, the Chinese vice premier, to come to Washington in the first couple of weeks of January. January and to sign this thing with Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, who, of course, led the negotiations. I think this is an agreement that uh, doesn't do everything that everybody wanted out of this agreement, but it does get enough done so that I think the market uncertainty that arose because of the uh, China dispute is probably gone for a while. So in other words, every issue with China is not going to be resolved, but the market is no longer going to say, what's happening with China? What are we going to do? And I think this, for the time being, is a pretty good deal for that purpose. Yeah, no, there's no question that this absolutely kind of puts at least a pause on any escalation or the prospect of any escalation. I think one of the things that's remarkable is uh, we always forget just how far we've come. A year ago, we had tariffs on $50 billion in imports from China. We now have tariffs on $360 billion in imports from China. $250 billion of those imports are subject to a 25% uh, tariff that is likely to continue for the foreseeable future. It is not going to be rolled back as, as, as part of this trade deal. Uh, and so one of the questions is going to be for businesses, I think, is, uh, you know, the administration likes these tariffs. The president certainly likes these tariffs because he thinks they're causing supply chains to shift. But whether we get into a more permanent shift and uh, in terms of businesses, in terms of supply chains and adapting to that, there's still a lot of uncertainty hanging out there. Not as much as there was. I think the president does like tariffs in part because it's something he can do by himself. He doesn't need to go to Congress or get the courts to approve it. So that's something that is uh, real presidential power. I think the real issue that Bob Lighthizer wanted to address and hasn't yet addressed because it wasn't politically feasible is the China 2025 issues. Those are the issues that people think next 10, 15, 20 years are the more serious ones, which is to say that China wants to use its government uh, money and resources to enable its companies to be a leader in semiconductor production, semiconductor design, artificial intelligence, 5G. That's the future of trade and the future of technology. And those issues, for lots of reasons, just couldn't be addressed right now. Yeah, and, and, the and plan, so will they? Well, I mean, and, that, and that's the big question, right? Yeah. I mean, if we look at phase one as a pause with some commitments from the Chinese on intellectual property that we don't know the details of yet, some commitments on currency manipulation to not do it, uh, some commitments on opening up the financial sector, uh, and, of course, these big uh, agricultural purchases, the president saying that we're talking about $200 billion in purchases of manufactured and agricultural goods over two years. Uh but, I mean, really, this is a, a pause, and the big issues like that issue, those issues have made in China 2025, and the broader issue of industrial subsidies uh, in China. I mean, that is what fueled the rise of industrial China, and that is the reason we talk about China as this great economic power in the world today, is this web of industrial subsidies, whether it's cheap loans or cheap electricity. Those aren't going away. Well, let me try to explain it in my terms that I often understand this. The trade deficit was a problem. And it was very recognizable. So if you're a presidential candidate or president, you could say the trade deficit is too high. I've got to do something about it. This might have some moderating effect, and it won't dramatically change it. But there hasn't been a political issue that people vote on China 2025. People don't quite understand that. So if you're warning for re-election in 2020, 
if you've got the phase one deal done, I think you won't have any political problems of saying, we'll deal with China 2025 later. I think that's right, and I think you've also got these tariffs in place which will satisfy the hawks uh, that you are taking action and that you are taking a hard line against China for the time being. So, Sean, before we let you go, the other thing, USMCA, USMCA, as we so fondly uh, call it here on our show, uh, success? It happened, NAFTA 2.0. Well, it hasn't happened yeah. just yet. And Close that's, to that's happening. always the way with trade. Still needs yeah. to go through the Senate, but a really a, a remarkable uh, vote in the House of Representatives yesterday with 385 uh, members of the House voting uh, to back this trade agreement. I go back to what Bob Lighthizer said two years ago when he said, I need to have a big bipartisan vote uh, on a new NAFTA, and this is just a renegotiation of NAFTA, we need to remember. Uh, but I need to have a big bipartisan vote because I want to rewrite the politics of trade in right. America. And the big question today is now we've got this big bipartisan vote. Are we going to go into a, a different world when it comes to the next trade agreement? Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. Sean Donnan, always good to catch up with you, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. We're going to be talking about trade a lot in 2020. I have a feeling. And we're going to count on Sean. He always brings us the real contours of this, whether it's in Michigan or as it relates to booze. So stay tuned for all of that. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on a Friday afternoon. Jason Kelly and David Rubenstein in our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Well, let's talk a little bit about a big story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It's about Rudy Giuliani, client number one, that would be the President of the United States, a deep dive of sorts, and the latest on the former mayor of New York City. Stephanie joins us on the phone from London. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Stephanie, I want to start with you. You have done so much great reporting about the Ukraine, about Ukraine, about Rudy Giuliani. What is the state of Rudy at this point? Yeah, well, Rudy has um, uh, gone from wearing the hat of uh, lawyer, consultant, uh, advisor to trying his hand at a form of journalism, if you can call it that. Um, and he's been uh, working on this documentary series with a uh, right-wing cable news uh, network called uh, OAN uh, about the whole Ukraine impeachment inquiry. And he flew to Ukraine um, uh, this month to interview various characters that have appeared in in this impeachment inquiry, specifically former prosecutors. And he's been pushing this out um, on his Twitter page and promoting it uh, he's been appearing less on Fox News and, um, you know, is trying to basically double down, dial up the whole narrative that got Trump into the impeachment mess to begin with. Joel? So, uh, you know, Stephanie's just be- done an incredible job um, on sort of this area of coverage. and We've done it in the magazine um, before from her. But the thing that I thought she did just an incredible job of revealing with this one is ultimately it's all about money for Rudy. And life is expensive. Uh, Stephanie, what, what did the, what, what is it turns out? It's like every month his life costs how much? Yeah, we got some of these figures from uh, his divorce proceedings. He recently settled uh, a divorce from his third wife. 
Um, and from that, it was revealed that he had about $30 million in assets, which he'd accumulated over the past two decades on the consulting and legal circuit. But he, was, he and his ex, now ex-wife are now are, are spending $230,000 a month. So he has a very expensive lifestyle. And now when he uh, stood down from his law firm, Greenberg Traurig, uh, in 2018 to take uh, on the role of uh, Trump's personal lawyer, he did so unpaid, and he gave up about four to six million in uh, annual income from his law firm, which left a big hole. And I think that's part of the story with Rudy Giuliani over the past 18 months is uh, he was, on the one hand, representing Trump, but on the other hand, still having to fill that financial gap. Um, and that led him to take on multiple clients. Um, and as we know from his interactions with these two Soviet-born uh, emigres who were recently arrested and uh, indicted on campaign finance violations, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, he took $500,000 from them uh, last year and it, it, for what it what looked like a very shaky venture um, and from two characters who um, had a trail of debts you know behind them and i think you know the driving force of rudy rudy giuliani is 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 partly money and i think we still don't know where he has made his money while he's been representing trump as his personal attorney and i think that is where the serious conflicts of interest uh, arise. Right. And I think, you know, now that New York prosecutors are examining both his business and political dealings with Parnas and Fruman, um, you know, I expect more to come out on that. So, Jason, that 230 a month stands out to me because it seems like maybe a little bit more than your life costs. <laughs> a, a little bit more. Yeah, a when you guys do, you know, household budgeting, exactly. it strikes me as a slightly high number. And I, I do think to Stephanie's point there, it goes a long way in just sort of describing where what he's ultimately up against, right? He's got to like pay some bills, and therefore there's a drive to actually like push the Rudy brand in all of its different facets to uh, other corners of the world. Absolutely. I mean, you know, whatever um, he says that he's just Trump's personal lawyer, or prior to that he was his cybersecurity advisor. Internationally, whenever he goes abroad, he is presented in the media as Trump's advisor, and he's treated like a foreign dignitary. So when he goes around the world pitching for his security clients, whether it's Bahrain or whether it's giving a speech for an anti-Iran speech where he's paid, he is seen as internationally as a representative of Trump or as a, as a conduit or some a way to get at Trump, even though he will say very um, steadfastly that he does not lobby Trump, he does not engage in influence peddling, um, you know, the perception of clients abroad that hire him is that this is a way to get at Trump. David, what's your take on all this? I've never been uh, prosecuted, and I've never been a prosecutor, So, and I don't know Rudy Giuliani really that well. He's, nice disclaimers. Uh, <laughs> right. But I would say that my impression is that people who are being looked at by prosecutors are generally well advised to stay out of the press. The, the prosecutors do not like people who are being investigated to kind of be very visible and almost 
uh, flaunting what they allegedly are being investigated for. So I assume his lawyers are telling him not to be on television that much, not to be too visible. And I think my impression would be that would be a very good advice. But again, I don't know the substance of what they're looking at. But I would say being low-key for a few months or maybe longer would be a good good thing to do, I think. Which doesn't seem to be in his constitution, <laughs> uh, apparently. I was going to say, didn't get that memo. It's, uh, well, well I know- can't. I, I can't he, say as he, somebody who has his own TV show and is on this show <laughs> that uh, you should, you know, not be very visible. So, I, I, you know, I recognize the appeal of uh, having a show or, or being on radio. But I think uh, at sometimes it's probably a good to lay low and just just do things that are counter to your nature. Right. Stephanie, what do you make of the, this sort of need to be so visible? Well, you know, there was a period there when he he has dialed back in terms of his media right. uh, appearances. He has not been on Fox News as often as he has been. You know, he used to, he was renowned for taking uh, phone calls from any reporter who who could get a hold of his number. And I, I had that early on in the year when I started reporting on his foreign business dealings back in. February, March, he spent a lot of time on the phone with me. He's no, he's no longer doing that with everyone. He's being quite selective as yeah. to who he actually responds to. He, you're more likely, and I think this is across the board by multiple reporters at different news outlets, you're more likely to get a text back from him than you are to get a phone call. Um, and that is very much different than it right. was at the beginning of the year. Now, having said that, in the past week or so, he does seem to be really dialing up, but he's doing it through this relatively safe, controlled format of this documentary series with this obscure uh, channel. All right. Well, we learned a lot from your reporting. Appreciate you, as always. Stephanie Baker, Financial Investigations, senior writer for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. Joel Weber, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, let's do a little Bloomberg economics now, a little Business Week economics here at the top of the three o'clock hour. Wall Street time headed back to New York. I'm Jason Kelly here in Washington, but let's go back to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio for a moment. Alex Harris there, bond reporter, repo expert. All right, Harris, before we go into the weekend, tell us what we need to know that's going on. Is this whole repo mess solved now? Everything's good? (laughs) Yeah, sure it is. Uh, No, I I think people are still uh, keeping a close eye on it. We have more of these term operations next week that are going to span the end of the year. And so what we're trying to gauge at this point is, you know, will the the take up from the dealers be less than what the Fed is offering? And is that starting to tell us that we might have some scarcity at the end of the year? You know, balance sheet scarcity and and some difficulty intermediating in the repo market, which, again, we might not really know until we get to December 31st. So everyone continues to keep an eye on it. I think it's probably going to be one of the more active segments of the fixed income market as we wind down the year. Right. And the Fed seems to be paying close attention to this, fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I know that, you know, Zoltan Pozar has has said, oh, you know, if this gets out of hand, the Fed's coming in with QE4 at the end of the year. Well, I think we're about six business days away from the end of the year. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say that we can we can all sort of walk back that idea that they're coming in here. I think, you know, the Fed has acknowledged that the repo market is going to be volatile. And I think people need to get used to that and remember that they just don't want so much volatility that it ends up moving 
hitting the target policy rate, that Fed funds rate, and jeopardizes the target range. And, and so that's what they're really worrying about. But really what we're looking ahead, we're looking ahead to 2020 because right. this is where you know, people want to know, okay, the Fed is pumping all this liquidity into the market. Well, how are they going to unwind it? You know, can they unwind it? And, and that's going to be the big question. And actually, uh, we try and preview this idea this weekend with our year ahead piece on all of this, because it is very difficult. We've seen that the Fed has right. no problem getting into the markets, but they really have a hard time untangling themselves. Right. And we saw that with the balance sheet unwind. All right. We'll keep a close eye on it. We know you'll be keeping an even closer eye on it. Alex Harris, Bond reporter for Bloomberg, joining us in New York City. Well, turning our attention here to the nation's capital, David Rubenstein, still with me, uh, founder, co-founder of the Carlisle Group, co-chairman, philanthropist, former uh, economic advisor, I believe, domestic policy advisor, to be more precise, back in the Carter administration. Peggy Collins is also here with me, managing editor of all of our economic coverage here in the United States. She's in our 99.1 studio. Uh, so, David, how does the economy feel at this point before we uh, break it down with Peggy? The economy actually feels reasonably good. The problem is that people can't believe it's this good this late in the cycle. Yeah. So we've never had an economic growth period this long, certainly since World War II. So people keep saying, how much longer can this keep going on for? And where are the signs of a crack? But there don't seem to be any signs of a crack. Everything seems to be going the way it should. And even the uncertainty of the impeachment hasn't really uh, affected uh, the economy. So right now, I, I think it's, it's in pretty good shape. What's your team working on, Pegs? Well, I think, as David said, we're in the 11th year of this record expansion. So the question is really looking at the consumer because they are really holding up this economy right now. We've seen consumer spending continue to hold strong. We had new revised GDP data that came in earlier this morning that reflected that that's still going on. And so what we're really starting to look at is in 2020, will that hold up? The other thing that's really driving this, which is in conjunction with the consumer spending, is jobs. We've seen, you know, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years that continues to hold. And you have some people looking at 2020 thinking that number could actually continue to go down. And one of those people is Fed Chairman Jay Powell. He's really said, look, the economy is in a good place. And I think if we can continue to roll along at this rate, that we could draw even more people out of the um, uh, off the sidelines and into the economy who traditionally have had a hard time finding jobs, whether you're marginalized because of your race or a disability or whatnot. You know, Do you buy when it? You, when you spend time in the markets and you go up and down over many, many years, you're always looking for something bad to happen. And I suspect something bad will happen at some point, but I can't put my finger on what it is right now. The only issue that I would note is that the Congress just has agreed to a large spending bill. And we're going to be we're running deficits of one trillion, one point two trillion dollars a year, twenty three trillion dollars of debt. The markets seem to say big deal. Modern monetary theory says who cares. But at some point, I think we're going to have to pay the price. And I don't know when that's going to be. But at some point, we're going to have to deal with the debt. And there were some questions talking about the repo market, which Alex is an expert on, on whether or not some of that spending by the government actually may have contributed to some of the the imbalances there. I also think we did see signs this year that it's not rock solid, right? So the trade war with the, with the markets and with business investment was certainly something that started to have an effect on the manufacturing industry and business investment overall. You know this, David, better than probably anyone, that when companies feel uncertain about where 
where things are going, whether it's tax policy or the or the economy, they hold back. And when they hold back on investment, research, development, and hiring, that can flow through to the economy in a negative way. What are bringing some headlines that are just crossing the Bloomberg now, courtesy of Dow Jones? SEC enforcement staff has sought information on listings from Citadel Securities, specifically related to the listings of Slack and other unicorns, according to Dow Jones. Uh, and focusing in part on the first day of trading. We will continue to look at that. Again, that breaking across the Bloomberg terminal right now, according to Dow Jones, the SEC probing some listings there. So just in the 45 seconds or so we have left in this segment, David, uh, from a policy perspective, how does it feel right now in terms of the administration and, and the Fed? I think the Fed is feeling pretty good about its position right now. They've lowered interest rates three times this year, yeah, I think most economists think they've done a pretty good job of reading where the market should be. I don't think there's a feeling we're going to have any increase anytime soon, but also no decrease anytime right. soon. So I think the Fed is feeling pretty good about the situation. They have to monitor the repo market. And I, uh, I think Congress is feeling they've done a reasonably good job leaving impeachment aside. They have not done anything to damage the economy, and the economy is moving along very nicely. Now, some exogenous event, a war breaking out, some pandemic breaking out can always make things different. But right now, I think people are going to have a, a Christmas season that are going to be pretty filled with uh, good times and not so much worries. There you go. All right. Well, our thanks to Peggy Collins, managing editor of our U.S. economic coverage here in Washington. David Rubenstein sticking with me for a little bit longer. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and David Rubenstein here in Washington, D.C., back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, the co-founders and managing partners of Harlem Capital Partners. We're talking about Henri Pierre Jocks and Jared Tingle. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. It's great All to right. be on. So, Henri, Henri, excuse me. Let me start with you. Uh, tell us about the creation of Harlem Capital. What's the uh, what's the story behind the story here? Yeah, so we started Harlem Capital December 2015 as the Angel Syndicate. We were investing our own personal capital. We worked on Wall Street. Did that for about a year and a half. Realized there was a market opportunity. Uh, people were talking about the lack of diverse founders, but we realized there was a lack of diverse investors. Uh, and then once, fast forward a year and a half, Jerry and I went to Harvard Business School. We were roommates there. Decided once we got to school that we felt like we had built a track record and there was a large market opportunity. Uh, and so we launched the fund between our first and second year of business school and then announced the closing of the fund uh, two weeks ago. So how much have you raised so far? So we raised $40 million for the first fund um, and feel really fortunate to have six institutions who backed us. And what type of rates of return are you seeking for your investors? Yeah, so we're targeting Forex gross for the fund, uh, given we're focused on seed series A, early stage. From a check size perspective, typically we're doing a half a million, $10 million, and we're focused on women and minority founders based in the U.S. And it can be anywhere in the U.S., is that right? Correct. We've invested in eight cities across nine industries. And you're focused on any type of areas, technology, healthcare, what, 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 what might it be? Yeah, so we're industry agnostic, um, but we don't invest in biotech, crypto. We don't do capital intensive industries like energy or infrastructure, where a micro fund like ours will just get too diluted long term. How many staff people do you have to help the two founders do the analysis? Sure. So it's us two founders, Henri and, and Jared. We have two venture partners, Brandon and John. They both have more of a media entrepreneurship focus, but it's actually a pretty good angle. We get a lot of reach and a lot of great branding as a result. 
And then we have a senior associate who already joined us part-time who will be joining us full-time after she graduates from Yale Business School. And then we have another joining us as well who will be finishing up Ross Michigan MBA and will be joining us in June. Okay, so very often in these kinds of funds, uh, some investors say, I want to get the highest rate of return I can. And I think emerging managers who are new will have some really great opportunities and other people are ignoring them so I can get in cheaply and get a good rate of return because the price is low and so forth. Other people say, I'm trying to create a social good and do something good for society. So even if I get a lower rate of return, I think I'm helping society. Which of those two perspectives is that of your investors or yours? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of both. Um, We don't call ourselves an impact fund. We're a venture fund with impact. We fundamentally believe that by investing underrepresented founders, there is more alpha to be made. Uh, Typically, when we see these founders at the seed stage, they've been in business for two or three years. They've generated revenue and have customers because a lot of them don't have family and friends. They can't do the early stage rounds. They have to do they have to generate revenue and oftentimes have higher margins in order to actually sustain the business before they can do an institutionalized seed round. Um, And so for us, we think that, you know, our impact is by creating more people of color and women. Um, who can have ownership and equity in their businesses. And we just fundamentally think that the wealth gap will not change just through education and six-figure okay. jobs, that you have to give equity to these founders. And it's been proven that a lot of them can't move up to the rankings in the top of these large organizations. Right. And your definition of an emerging manager would be somebody it is a minority or a woman, and they have to own a majority of the general partnership of the fund in which you're investing. Is that correct? Correct. Our core demographic is women of all races and then black and Latino men. And just to clarify, we're, we're investing in VC-backed startups. So these you're, are- you're investing in startups, yeah. So, so Jared, let me ask you this. In the fundraising process, what was that like? What did you discover as you were going out to, to institutions who, you know, as David just laid out, you know, may have different approaches to this, uh, this world of investing that, that as you have said, is somewhat untapped. Sure, I think we realized three key things. One is that people aren't as liquid as you think. So as we were going to our close network of former bosses, banking MDs, et cetera, it became quickly clear that not a lot of people can write more than the 100K check in a fund or at least feel comfortable doing that because they may have equity in their company, et cetera, but not a lot of liquid assets. The second thing we realized that sequencing matters And so the way you go to market around building credibility with people that are close to you, then moving on to people outside your network that may have more capital, and then moving to institutions is a path that worked well for us. But in general, I think building up momentum, credibility, methodically is really important. Um, Because if we went to some of the institutions that ended up coming into our fund, like Vanderbilt, et cetera, it would have been a much tougher conversation than going to them after we already had established ourselves. And the last thing, just relationships Uh matter. Even the biggest institutions, right. we had to get a warm introduction. That's one of the reasons why we weren't able to get in front of David. Uh, but hopefully, for fun too, <laughs> well, <laughs> we may be able to do maybe it. I'll, I'll take a look at it. Uh, I look and I invest in a lot of first funds. But let me ask you this: uh, What did your family say? You go to Harvard Business School, maybe piled up some debt. Uh, they want you to go to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, and you're saying, "No, I'm starting a new fund. That's going to be complicated to get off the ground." But uh, trust me, what did your family say? Only 30 seconds left. Yep, it was tough. I applied for big mega fun stuff. Um, We got a lot of traction. I think they said it was up to me, but everyone gave me pretty pretty negative feedback um, because until it's real, it's tough for people to see the vision. Uh, But the proof is in the pudding, and because we were able to execute, they ended up coming around eventually. 
Look, they told Warren Buffett he didn't know what he was doing at the beginning right. either, so you might pull it off. Congratulations. All right. Great to talk to you guys. Henri Pierre-Jacques and Jared Tingle, co-founders, managing partners of Harlem Capital Partners. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, earlier this week on The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson talked with David, my co-host today, about steering the U.S. economy through the financial crisis back in 08 and the state of financial authorities today. Let's listen in. So Lehman um, was on the verge of going bankrupt, and you did not have at that time the authority to save Lehman. I know everybody's asked you about that since then, but in hindsight, is there anything you could have done differently with respect to Lehman? Boy, I'll tell you, I, I don't think there was. We tried everything we could to get a buyer. Uh, Lehman was a bigger problem even than Bear Stearns because they were insolvent. There was a big capital hole. Uh, There was no way that a loan was going to solve the problem. It it was going to take capital or a loan guarantee. Okay, and ultimately the banking system came back and the financial system came back. But as you look at the system today, could something like that happen again with the legislation we now have? Are we better able to protect against something like that? First of all, our financial system is much stronger than it was. The banks are better capitalized. It's much less likely to start in, in, in the U.S. There's less dry tinder to start a fire. But, and I hate to say this, but we have less authorities today than we had then. And the number one problem we had then, the number one problem by far, was we had a financial system that had outgrown our regulatory system. Uh, Our regulatory system and authorities had been put in place after the Great Depression when there was a run on banks, and we had a situation where 60% of the credit was flowing outside of the banking system. All right, and that is former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson speaking with my co-host today, David Rubenstein, for his show, The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversation. So, David, uh, that was just a snippet from Hank Paulson. Obviously, that was an unbelievable time. You lived through it as well. What did you take away from Hank in terms of his perspective now, you know, 11 years on from all of that? Well, I think he feels that they did everything they realistically could. And all the analyses that have been done since then have not come up with anything that said they should have done this differently. They didn't create the financial problem. Uh, They really inherited it. It came about for many years of debt being built up. It's hard to believe, but the House of Representatives did not pass the TARP legislation the first time. Right. And that is when people thought, "Uh oh, we are going down because we didn't pass TARP. We have no uh, remedy. Today, I think he's right. It'd be harder for that to happen because we have greater protections and so forth. What I actually got out of the interview, though, is in part was this. Hank Paulson is unlike many former Treasury secretaries. They, he has not gone back into business to make, take advantage of his visibility, which he could have done. What he's done is he's basically um, doing two things, environmental protection in the United States. He's a big, passionate environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And secondly, improving U.S.-China relationships. But unlike many people go to China to do things there, he has no interest in making money. He's he's only there to try to improve the relationship and in part to improve the environment there as well. So a very admirable person. And I I was in a meeting that uh, the Bloomberg – organization organized uh, recently at uh, in China, the conference, and Xi Jinping uh, presided over the, a meeting we had, 
And the two Americans who spoke, who were most listened to by the Chinese, were Henry Kissinger, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. and Hank Paulson. And Hank Paulson has now been to China over 150 times. Oh, my goodness. And so he is indefatigable in going there. He started when he was uh, um, in, at the Chicago office of, uh, of Goldman Sachs before he was CEO. And he knows this place as well as any business person in the world. Uh, who's not Chinese. So very admirable person, and I think the interview was quite uh, revealing. And so what does he say about the future of U.S.-China relationship? He thinks there is some tension. He doesn't want to say everything is perfect. He would say that perhaps, and I think he said in the interview, that uh, the way that sometimes the administration articulates its position might not be the way he would have articulated it. But he likes to maintain his relationship with the administration, so he's pretty private about his views. But I think he does have enormous uh, clout in China, and I think he's got pretty good access to people in this administration because they respect what he's done. You think other people will follow the playbook he has and not sort of go back into the money-making realm post well, I think his view was I mean, he was never that interested in making a large sum of money, and he was a Goldman. Goldman did very well, so he's not. Uh, on, he did just fine, right? Yeah, he's fine, <laughs> but he's giving away all his money. Uh, basically, he has uh, uh, committed to give his children a very modest amount of money, relatively speaking, and and he's uh, giving away all of his money. Yeah, interesting guy. Well, it's a really interesting interview, and. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show about what you've learned uh, from this show. It's the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. This week's episode, the most recent episode, you just heard a snippet of it there, is with former Treasury, Treasury Secretary, excuse me, easy for me to say, Hank Paulson. Uh, you just heard a bit about steering the U.S. economy, that moment uh, those critical, critical moments when uh, Lehman wasn't saved, Bear Stearns obviously saved, and the brink of collapse that we certainly stared across, stared into the abyss, certainly just a few years ago. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close now. Michael Cugino back with us, president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, looking after about $2.3 billion. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco here with David Rubenstein and myself in Washington. Michael, great to have you back. Good afternoon, Jason and David, and uh, happy holidays. Thank you. And to you. All right, so we're coming toward the end of the year, the last working day for many people as they look forward to taking the week of Christmas off. How do you feel about 2019? Uh, I think it's been a real good year for a lot of different asset classes. If you look at what's gone on this year, uh, every asset class to some degree has had its day in the sun, whether it's been gold and silver, whether it's been equities which have bled up all year, whether it was the rally in the bond market caused by the Fed's change in direction. So I think it's been a solid year all the way around. Economic growth has been maybe a little less than people had hoped for. Um, you know, you can point to trade issues and potential uncertainty with respect to monetary policy. Um, but by and large, um, you know, it's been a good year, and the expectations are it's going to continue at least into the first half of 20. 
I agree with that. I think uh, people are we're feeling pretty good about next uh, first first six months of next year for sure. We don't see any real clouds on the horizon. Inevitably, something bad can happen. But right now, I think people are feeling pretty good, and I expect that people are going to feel pretty good during the Christmas season. And so, Michael, trade, is that something that you – might worry about again? Or is this enough, this phase one deal, to sort of take it essentially off the table from a, 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 or at least from the top of the list or near the top of the list for investors to worry about? Well, as a broad statement, I think the trade has been reduced as a risk factor going into the new year. Now, when you say trade, you know, there's a lot of subcomponents sure. to that. So starting U.S. With China, China first, yeah. uh, I think it was a low, low expectations and low execution deal, okay? They agreed on the simplest things they could. That's probably all we're going to get now, especially going into an election year. And there's some structural issues that really need to be ironed out that I don't think are going to be short-term solutions. So you did the best you could, and you took a risk off the table. The new NAFTA, assuming it gets approved, not a whole lot different than the old NAFTA, maybe some marginal improvements. But again, taking the risk off the table, ensuring that we've got Western Hemisphere free trade going on, and maybe some improvements is a good thing for the markets. Um, And then with Europe, you have isolated issues, you know, the potential for a, a, a British a British only deal has gone up quite a bit with an expectation in the recent election that um, you know we are going to have a brexit so that opens the door for a, an England deal and uh, with the EU you've got isolated issues with various countries that I think can be worked out and probably for the benefit of all we ought to uh, get along with those guys as best we could and clean up any loose ends and and have more freer trade there as well so Broadly, risk factors gone and hopefully optimistic viewpoints going forward. Yeah, I, I think the president would no doubt say in a campaign, I got these two big trade agreements done. I got the Korean and J- Japanese one as well. And you won't know, no one will know whether they really work uh, until probably after next November. So for quite some time, I think somebody can say in the administration, we got some deals got done and let them take their time to, to work their way through the system. So I think there'll be some bragging points the administration would have. Obviously, members of Congress want to take credit for USMCA improvements, but I think the president will probably get the lion's share of the credit for that deal. And so when you talk to your customers, Michael, what are they most worried about as we think about the first three to six months of the year? You know, not really not much right now, yeah. <laughs> which which is interesting because, you know, there are a lot of risk factors out there. I think they've been clearly defined, and, and I think you get tired of talking about them sometimes. But by and large, the economy's working, people, record low unemployment, consumers are spending, businesses are spending. The growth in corporate profits has been down, but corporate profits are still growing a little bit. Um, and you've got lower corporate taxes, so more money's being spent productively. Inflation is low, and monetary policy to cost of capital is low. So you don't generally see recession start with that fact pattern. So that, that's the reason for optimism. And realistically, it's probably not misplaced, given the landscape at the moment. These things can change quickly, right. though, and I think you need to keep that in mind. And we are potentially late cycle. I think one of the biggest things the markets are dealing with is, are we late cycle going into a recession, or are we pausing within a, a broader growth trend? And that seems to be the one big question I think investors are trying to figure out on our end. And I think one of the big things that happened this year was that there was kind of the air taken out of the unicorns, uh, particularly WeWork, for example, and Uber yeah. uh, didn't do quite as well as people had thought. And therefore, you might expect that some people would say, well, we, let's be more wary of the technology cycle and, and also the technology uh, sector. But I, I don't think that's really happened. Yes, there's a couple people, a couple of deals people are worried about. But generally, people are still putting money in venture capital, still, still 
giving high valuations to our leading technology yeah. companies. And the leading technology companies, our five or six big technology companies, are really booming. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Michael Cugino, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much. President Portfolio Manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, about $2.3 billion under management. He joined us on the phone from San Francisco. Well, David Rubenstein, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to let you get back to your actual day job. Although, I, let's be honest, like your coolest job is being the host of the David Rubenstein Show, right? Uh, that's what I look forward to the most. <laughs> but uh, since there's no carried interest in interviewing that, I have to can go back to my day job. But thank you very much for inviting me today. No, it's been a lot of fun. And I do wonder, you know, just in the couple of minutes we have left, as you look back on 2019, like what's going to be the, the defining moment, you think, from your perspective as an investor, a philanthropist, TV host? Well, I'd say uh, the economy, the big news of the year was basically that the, the year powered through pretty well. We didn't get any of the recession kinds of things that actually people predicted at the beginning of the year. In politics, the big news will obviously be the impeachment. Um, in international, I think the big news was uh, probably the trade agreement with China, the first phase getting done, and the Brexit uh, vote that occurred and, 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 and the election in, in, in Europe. Um, I think those are probably the big pieces of news. I think uh, generally people entered the year some, somewhat nervous about the economy and the politics, and I think they're probably leaving the year feeling pretty good about the economy. Uh, people probably know where the impeachment thing is going to go, so I don't think they're that worried about it, even though it's got to play itself out. So other than a new book from you in 2020, what else can we expect from David Rubenstein? Well, I hope to lose some pounds. I'm going to go exercise my usual five minutes a day. Uh, we'll probably go from five minutes to ten minutes. Um, and uh, hopefully I can lose a pound by the, during the year. Well, that's a good goal. We all have, to, uh, all have to have goals for sure. And I assume you will be active in your philanthropy as well. I, as I was landing last night in Washington, I marveled at the now repaired Washington Monument, thanks Yes, to you. it's open. The elevator is fixed. And uh, now we're working on the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and the Arlington House. And hopefully in the next year or two, some of those will be open uh, with those changes. All right. Well, a lot more to talk about when next you come to visit. I really appreciate you spending some My time pleasure. with me today. Always good to have your perspective. And most pointedly, I loved being on the phone or on the air with you as you were talking to an emerging investor. I got a sense of what it might be like uh, to be across the table from you uh, raising some money. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.